0: you're listening to a toronto center podcast welcome the goal of tc podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders experts and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation In each episode, we will delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation, the financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to TC Podcasts On The Go. I'm Anatole Manid, Program Director from Toronto Centre. Today, I'm in Toronto, Canada, and have the pleasure of spending time with Dr. Blair Feltmate. Dr. Blair Feltmate is a professor at the School of Environment, Enterprise, and Development, and he is the head of the Intact Centre on Climate Adaptation. His primary interest is to de-risk Canada relative to the impacts of climate change, and our conversation today will focus on climate risks to the financial system, climate change, and extreme weather events. Welcome, Dr. Feltmate, and thank you for taking time to sit down with me today.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: So let's uh, start off. Uh, There are many agreements in place in Canada and around the world to help combat climate change and extreme weather risks. Where are we headed given this framework?
1: So these global agreements, for example, the Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Agreement, uh, the United Nations Framework on Climate Change, or in Canada – We have the Pan-Canadian Framework on Clean Growth and Climate Change. They are all good, and I support them. Nonetheless, despite these agreements, climate change is irreversible, uh, which has been determined by the IPCC, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and most recently in Canada, in Canada's Changing Climate Report 2019. The irreversibility of climate change is driven by a number of factors. Uh, To begin with, for example, Currently, about 80% of world energy supply comes from more or less about a third each of coal, oil, and natural gas. These are all fossil fuel-based sources that when they're burnt, they release carbon into the atmosphere, which serves to trap energy that otherwise would have escape into space. It stays in our, in our atmosphere, causes warming, and therein lies the problem of expression of a climate change extreme weather risk. By 2040, according to the International Energy Agency, Fossil fuels will still constitute about 80% of world energy supply, but the absolute carbon footprint will be about 12 to 15% greater than it is today. And with the primary driver affecting this uh, being an increasing world population. The world's population right now increases net if you subtract deaths from births by about 11,000 people per hour. So in other words, every single hour, if you take the number of people born, subtract the deaths, there's 11,000 more people on the planet which translates through to about another 80 to 90 million more people on the planet per year. So for certain, we will go from about 7.7 billion people right now to add another 1.2 billion people to the planet by 2030-35 in that zone somewhere, for a total global population of 8.9 billion. And just to put those numbers into context, because they're hard to grasp, if you go back to the time of Christ, so let's call that zero – Um, there are about 250 million people on the planet. By 1930, there were 2 billion. So it took about more or less 2,000 years to get to 2 billion people on the planet, assuming you accept the time of Christ is zero. From 1930 till now, in just uh, about 90 years, we've added 5.7 billion people to the planet. So in less than 100 years, we've added more than two and a half times as many people to the planet as what previously took 2,000 years. So therein lies the driver of use of energy of fossil fuels on the planet, increasing population. Also, climate change is is actually driving climate change, independent of the burning of fossil fuels. For example, through the release of methane from melting permafrost, when we start to heat systems through the burning of fossil fuels, uh, in northern regions, that is causing warming. Uh, The warming causes permafrost to melt. When permafrost melts, it releases methane gas. Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. The more methane that's released, uh, the more energy that's trapped in our system, the more warming we get, the more permafrost that melts, and it's a positive feedback system. We've also had a loss of ice in the Arctic of around uh, 40% over the last 40 to 50 years. When we have the bright surface of snow and ice on the ground originally, But then uh, about when sunlight hits that surface, about 80% of that energy reflects back into space. But once we started to warm the system through the burning of fossil fuels, we went from the bright surface of snow and ice to the dark surface of water. When sunlight hits the dark surface of water, most of that energy no longer reflects back into space, as it would if it was snow and ice. The energy stays in the system. And the more energy that stays in the system, the more warming you get. And the more warming you get, the more snow and ice that melts. So it's another positive feedback system. And then finally, and I won't go into the details of it, it takes too long, but we've seen a loss of about 16 to 18% of algae in the surface layer of the oceans over the last uh, 30 to 40 years. And that's driving another positive feedback system of warming, driving, warming. So basically what we have, we have in an environmental problem driving an environmental problem now that is um, unprecedented. And if at this point I haven't depressed anybody, everybody too much, just let's go just a little bit further. As if that's all not bad enough, uh, we need to note that global agreements, going back to the agreements on climate change, mostly focus on uh, lowering greenhouse gas emissions, which is good, but very little effort is being directed towards adaptation measures that can put can be put in place to lower the impacts of flood, drought, fires, uh, hail, wind, snow load, permafrost loss, sea level rise, more powerful storms. All of these things that I've just listed off that list are getting more dramatic, more problematic as a function, function of time. The intensity, the duration and the frequency of these factors are on the rise. And they're not really uh, taken into account in any great extent in the global agreements as to how do we how do we build adaptation into the system? So in my view, the key take home message on this overall point is this, it's the capital markets and financial supervisors should not think that carbon pricing and well intentioned global agreements, I'm not being critical of them, but well intentioned global agreements, we should not think that they're going to reverse climate change. Climate change and extreme weather risk is a done deal. It's here to stay and it's going to get more problematic as a function of time, period.
0: Well, the idea of climate change driving climate change is truly troubling. So uh, why should financial services supervisors be concerned about potentially devastating impacts of extreme weather risks to financial institutions like life and health insurers, property and casualty insurers, or banks?
1: Well, for a number of reasons. They, they need to be concerned. For example, extreme weather presents a new set of major stressors to insurers and bankers that did not exist historically or not in a measurable way even 10 years ago. So this is a new and evolving phenomenon. Supervisors, financial supervisors must assess whether, for example, insurers and banks can measure and price climate risk appropriately or put in place measures to limit risk of floods, fire, sea level rise, etc. Or should some insurers and banks walk away from doing business in high risk regions, but in so doing suffer potential revenue losses and you know what might these losses look like? So just to illustrate some of these risks, let's let's turn to the area to begin with of property and casualty insurance. Fire used to be the big payout on claims for insurers up to about more or less 20 years ago. But flood is the new fire in North America. South America and Europe, and probably other parts of the world, but those are the areas I focus on, North America, South America, and Europe. Flooding is the elephant in the room when it comes to insurable risk. And by way of trend, and for the moment, I'm I'm going to uh, reference Canadian insurable loss trends, but the pattern is is pretty much similar globally. So it's the trend that counts. Um, In Canada, insurable losses on the property and casualty insurance side of the equation from 1983 to 2008, we're in the zone of about 250 to $450 million per year. That's how much the insurers could count on paying out from 1983 to 2008 on a per-year basis. However, from 2009 onwards, and this is after correcting for inflation and for per capita wealth accumulation, in other words, the numbers I'm giving here, it's a comparison of apples to apples, insurable losses have exceeded... billion per year for 10 out of the last 11 years, and water and residential flooding explains over 50% of this increase in claims. Um, Home premiums have risen in Canada uh, by about 20 to 25% in the last five years. Insurable cap rates for home flood losses are decreasing. In other words, the amount the insurer will cover you for a flooded basement up to a certain amount. Those amounts are coming down as a reflection of risk, increasing risk. And Canada is now experiencing growth in the uninsurability of the housing market, where from Halifax to Victoria, right across the country, and by the way, this is also being seen in other places in the world, but where we have homes now where people cannot get insurance coverage, period, for their home for flood damage. They can still get coverage for theft and fire, but not for flooding. And with the average cost of a flooded basement in Canada being $43,000 at the moment, if you have a flooded basement, no insurance coverage, this can be a problem. So now the question is, why should financial supervisors be concerned about increasing insurable losses? Uh, Supervisors might ask, for example, uh, can PNC insurers withstand the impact or the claims costs of potentially debilitating catastrophic events that will most probably get worse and uh, be more costly? driven through climate change, that's irreversible. For example, these impacts may be worse than the Calgary floods of 2013 or worse than the Fort Mac fire of 2016. So how are supervisors assessing this risk relative to insurers? Supervisors might also ask what the avoidance or non-insurance coverage uh, for certain perils might mean for insurance. For insurers. For example, uh, and by the way, insurers, they don't Uh, want to be out of the business of offering insurance. People say, well, they just don't offer insurance in a certain location and it's not a problem. Well, that's a little bit like McDonald's saying they're not going to sell hamburgers. The the business of insurance is to provide insurance. So how are supervisors addressing what market avoidance might potentially mean to insurers' viability? And should PNC insurers uh, be working with governments to develop and implement adaptation practices to help ensure an insurable housing market going forward? Our supervisors addressing these questions. So that's on the PNC side of the equation. Let's turn a little bit, you mentioned life and health insurance. So in the area of life and health insurance, we now know that mental health stress is associated with residential flooding and its material. And by the way, two years ago, we did not even realize that mental health stress due to flooding may be a factor for life and health insurers to consider. So what questions might supervisors ask of life and health insurers? They might ask Could claims for mental health prescriptions, counseling services, and or lost time from work prove problematic for life and health insurers? What are the the implications, the ramifications? And then finally, let's just say something about banking. Let's turn to banking. Escalating flood and fire can impact banks in a multitude of ways. Uh, Questions for supervisors to ask of banks might include uh, the following, and this is not even an extensive list. Due to repeated and excessive residential flooding and growing costs or lack of insurance coverage that we've just covered, might this affect uh, large-scale mortgage defaults, for example? Could this be debilitating for banks? Relative to commercial real estate and secured lines of credit, what impact will increasing degrees of garage-level flooding for commercial office towers and condo buildings have on property value? For example, if a tenant cannot access a building for an extended period of time, would they default on rent payments? And if so, to what extent? How pervasive would that impact be? Following extreme weather events relative to small businesses, might there be loan losses for banks due to declines in the revenue streams of those companies? Uh, from the perspective of even the physical location of branches, might banks suffer write downs attributable to having flooding, fires, etc. across large impacted regions of flood or fire risk. So banks and banks may even suffer by the way, consumer attrition due to rightly or wrongly, uh, fairly or unfairly, consumers believing that banks, uh, business practices are not environmentally friendly. So there's a whole plethora of dimensions for supervisors to consider in reference to looking at the impacts and the ramifications of climate change, extreme weather risk and what it means to property and casualty insurance, life and health insurance and banks.
0: Well, it sounds like financial supervisors need to think about whether banks and insurance companies, financial institutions are prepared to deal with their own resilience, but what a lack of resilience in other areas might have on their portfolio of risks and investments. Um, your work, you, uh, you work with many financial institutions across a number of regulated sectors, what have you learned about their perceptions and responses to climate change and extreme weather risks? Um,
1: it varies. Some insurers on the PNC on the property and casualty insurance side, I find are well informed and prepared for climate change while others are not. Well prepared PNC insurers, for example, have recently, and by recent I mean within the last 5 years, hired full-time meteorologist and climatologist to provide input to actuarial analysis to set insurance premiums, for example. This is for the, the insurers ahead of the curve. Banks, I find, to be generally more embryonic in their understanding of climate change. They understand that uh, TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Financial Disclosure, may be important, but they don't quite know how to respond. Um, institutional investors generally think of climate change still in terms of challenges, in terms of carbon pricing, and the potential effects on stranded assets, understanding of extreme weather impacts, which is far more impactful than carbon pricing, at least in my view, is not uh, uh, so well understood. And by the way, all those observations are ne- not meant to be criticisms of insurers or banks. They're 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 on the
0: learning curve
1: here, but that that's how I perceive their 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 current sense of the challenge.
0: Thanks, Dr. Feltmate. Supervisors need to understand where their sectors are in relation to addressing climate risks. Is there any relationship between climate change and COVID-19? In my view,
1: yes. In this sense, COVID-19 is a warning shot. Climate change impacts potentially affecting large scale migrations of people who, who have to leave areas of the world that are flooding or there's not adequate food supply or it's a drought, uh, may manifest themselves. We may see violent conflicts amongst disenfranchised groups around the world. We may see supply chain disruption. We may see sea level rise, that is redefining coastal residency uh, and related factors, which will be much more challenging than COVID-19. So COVID-19 is gives us a warning shot as to what large scale disruption on a global basis, or at least on large geographic zones can look like and certainly climate change will feed into that process. And climate change and uh, related extreme weather risk will be more challenging than COVID-19 in at least one other regard. With COVID-19, physical infrastructure functions, in other words, electricity flows uh, will function. Electricity flows, phones work, uh, internet systems work, transport systems work. With extreme weather, All of these may break down. So there is no backup plan, so to speak. So that's one big differentiator between climate change, extreme weather risk manifestation versus COVID-19. COVID-19, we can still work from home. We can socially distance. Our infrastructure works. We can get along. The expression of climate change, extreme weather risk on scale may mean that infrastructure breaks down and incapacitates us.
0: That's uh, quite a... uh challenge if it uh, it presents itself. Does increasing our resilience and adaptive capacity to the coronavirus offer any insights into dealing with climate change? Well, it just shows us when things
1: go wrong on scale, we need to prepare. We need to be ahead of the curve. Um, We need to understand that adapting to climate change is not an option. It's not negotiable. Uh, If we try to cheat the system uh, by not preparing for extreme weather, we will lose. And there is one major area, primarily in reference to the costs associated with adaptation to extreme weather, that is often misunderstood, and I'd maybe like to highlight here. There is a belief that adapting to climate change is prohibitively costly, and this is wrong. Um, The cost to build correctly in the first place, with adaptation in mind, under the umbrella of adaptation, um, uh, or to build adaptation into scheduled retrofits, is about the same as the cost of not doing so. But if, however, if you build wrong by ignoring adaptation and then have to rebuild uh, to correct efficiencies in the future, this is enormously costly. So we need to learn that uh, by getting ahead of the curve and building right in the first place, this positions us much, much uh, more effectively in the long term than to pretend a problem doesn't exist, to ignore it, and that wait till disaster strikes. Uh, we want to avoid management by disaster. The return on investment, by the way, for adaptation is generally in the zone of, and I'm not sure why it always works out to this, but it does, is generally in the zone that $1 invested in adaptation produces about $3 to $8 in savings per 10-year period. And by the way, I'm putting a cap on that being 10 years in this in this sense or for this reason. People say to me, what's the return on investment associated with adaptation? I say, well, you give me the time frame, Because once you put the measure in place to mitigate the risk, Every time that extreme weather event occurs thereafter, a flood or a fire, or whatever it might be, and you've avoided those losses, you can rack up the return you've saved for that event, but then also for the event after that and the event after that. So adaptation of climate change is effectively the gift that keeps on giving, if you will. Um, more broadly, on a global basis, uh, there is no such thing as when it comes to climate change that it is their problem. Their problem is our problem. Period. We see to a certain extent that nationalism is showing its head. Nationalism, which is becoming more prominent in some companies, in my view, is movement in the wrong direction. Uh, I believe the world needs, uh, for lack of a better descriptor, a global Marshall Plan on adaptation. Uh, The Global Commission on Adaptation, which is headquartered in the Netherlands and is supported by Canada, by the way, quite admirably, is leading in this area. So there is no such thing when it comes to climate change as isolationism, if you will. Uh, Problems around the world cascade, and uh, there is a, a problem that we might have historically thought of, that's their problem over there. There's no such thing. It is our problem. It's in our collective best interest to work collaboratively to address these stresses.
0: All supervisors know that uh, interconnectedness has always existed in the financial services, but I think what you're alerting us to is that there are global dependencies that cross many jurisdictions and business channels, and supervisors need to be alert to that. Given our audience is made up of financial services regulators and supervisors or government officials, what advice would you give them specifically or collectively about the potential impact of climate change on their regulatory purviews? I believe
1: uh, financial services, regulators, supervisors, government officials are very well intentioned in their commitment to address climate change and extreme weather risk. I do not question that. However, their understanding of climate change and extreme weather risk is in the nascent stages, in my experience. And by the way, and as I said previously, this is not a criticism. This is an observation. Uh, They are dealing with a newly evolving global stress. So they are on the learning curve, quite, quite understandably. As a slight remedy to this omission, and this is an area, quite frankly, where the Toronto Centre excels and is doing such important work, I believe the financial services sector needs a crash course in climate change and extreme weather risk, what financial supervisors need to know, or some title to that effect. Right now, I believe the financial supervisors think of climate change as a price on carbon, disproportionately, and and that's fine, that's true. However, I believe financial uh, supervisors need to also focus with great interest on the threats that irreversible climate change and extreme weather risk may bring to their sector. So let's build on the positive momentum of of looking at climate risk from the perspective of carbon pricing or stranded assets and factor uh, extreme weather risk into the equation as well.
0: Well, thanks for that. Uh, The Toronto Centre has developed uh, climate risk programs covering climate change extreme weather risks, green finance, and other environmental risks that may be impacting the world's financial systems. We'd be happy to discuss an opportunity to develop one for the any audience jurisdiction. So it's been a real pleasure, Dr. Feltmate, to hear what you have to say. Do you have any closing thoughts or comments uh, for our listeners? In my view, the biggest challenge pertaining to, to climate change
1: is that is complacency. I think globally, we think we have the luxury of time to address climate change and prepare for extreme weather events that are to come. Every day we don't adapt is a day we don't have, period. So uh, if the question is, globally, are, are we heading in the right direction to address climate change? The answer is yes. But are we moving fast enough? The answer is no. I think we need to accelerate in reference to our commitments on three fronts. Mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, adapting to climate change and extreme weather risk, as we've been discussing. And also, I believe the world needs to put more effort into the whole area of carbon capture and sequestration, actually sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and safely storing it. It's those three dimensions that we have to pursue simultaneously to address climate change, extreme
0: weather risk, and hopefully get as much risk out of the system as possible. Those are wise words to heed, Dr. Feltmate. Thank you. Please join us uh, to further discuss climate risk to the financial system, supervising in the new normal at an upcoming climate risk community of practice on June 23rd. Watch for our next email. I'm here in Toronto, Canada with Dr. Blair Feltmate, head of the Intact Centre on Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo. And you've been listening to Toronto Centre Podcasts On The Go. Thanks for joining us.